It's an honor to get to preach this morning. And as most of you know, uh, my wife Sunny and my son Jude and I moved from the Seattle, Washington area to San Francisco earlier this year. And that was largely out of a sense of calling to this city and even more specifically of a sense of calling to this church. And so we are really glad to be here. It's been wonderful to get to be in the city. It's been wonderful to get to be a part of Citizens, get to know so many of you uh, over this past season. And we're looking forward to what the Lord has for us uh, in the months and years ahead. Uh, When we moved to San Francisco, we landed in the outer sunset. And one of the most peculiar things about the outer sunset right now is a number of Waymo cars. There are Google's self-driving Waymo cars everywhere in the sunset. I see big nods right now from Kevin. They're just everywhere. Uh, Fellow resident of the sunset over there. Um, Maybe 30 times a day, I see a self-driving car drive past my living room window on Moraga Street. And I'm kind of a nerd at heart, so I kind of love it. Um, And recently I was reading about these Waymo cars and I found out that uh, they're launching an autonomous self-driving taxi service in San Francisco. And so like the nerd that I am, I signed up on the spot for these cars uh, and I unfortunately haven't been accepted into the program yet. It's like an early kind of beta test. That's for another sermon. But um, I, uh, I hope to because it feels like the future is breaking into the present in our city. Like I can imagine maybe a decade from now, dozens of cities across our country will have self-driving cars that you can get into kind of like you would a Lyft or a Uber today. Uh, but right now, that's, that's not here yet. But it feels like the future is like breaking into the present with these Waymo cars. I think it's so neat. And that's really the focus of the text that we're in today in Romans 8. What we'll see together is that because the Spirit dwells in us, the future is breaking into the present. And what we'll be invited into in this text is to move from our old way of doing things in the flesh into a new way of doing things in the spirit such that we experience a little resurrection happening inside of us today. And so as we move through this passage in Romans 8, uh, we'll see three things. We'll see first that because the spirit dwells in us, we are many temples. Second, because the spirit dwells in us, uh, we will rise from the dead. And third, because the spirit dwells in us, resurrection is beginning inside of us today. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we recognize that you are here, present with us, present in us right now by your spirit. And so I pray that you would illuminate your word to us. God, will we see you clearly for who you are? Would you open our eyes? And God, will we experience afresh what good news uh, the gospel truly is this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this passage begins with a radical claim. The spirit dwells in us. Now, because of the uh, cultural distance between Paul's largely Jewish audience and our culture today, it's easy for us to miss what a stunning claim this is. 
And so I want to start by just kind of tracing the theme of dwell, of God's dwelling place through the story of God. One of my favorite things about citizens is the emphasis on the story of God in the life of this church. And so you're probably familiar with these icons that are used often to kind of summarize the movement through the story of God. And so we'll start in the beginning with creation as we trace the theme of dwell. So God dwells with the first humans in the Garden of Eden. And he's depicted as walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It is a beautiful, amazing picture that we see of God's space and human space overlapping in the Garden of Eden. And when we read the creation account, we encounter kind of a three-tier geography where there's the land, and then within the land, there's Eden, and then within Eden, there's the garden. And the garden is the holy place in the center of Eden where God's space and human space overlap, where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where the first humans, Adam and Eve, dwell in the presence of God. It is beautiful and it is so good. But as we know, that doesn't last for long as the first humans choose rebellion and are kicked out of the garden. They can tragically no longer enter into the holy place of the garden because of their sin, their rebellion against God. And we read in a really interesting passage in Genesis 3:24, God drove the man, uh, drove out the man rather, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What is a cherubim? That's for another sermon. But <laughs> we'll just say it's a big spiritual being and it's described with a, a flaming sword. So it's like this giant keep out sign uh, in front of the garden, the holy space where God's space and human space overlap. And so it's a horrible scene in the story where we're asked, where we were left asking the question of ourselves, will God restore his presence among humans? Will they dwell with them again? And then we fast forward to the Exodus story. After 400 years of slavery, we are far, far away from Eden. And it seems like all hope is lost. But then God rescues his people from the Egyptians and commands them to build a tabernacle. Uh, We read a beautiful passage in Exodus 25. And God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. There's that word again, dwell. It's like almost, it's like the humans are almost back in the garden. It's like the tabernacle is a portable garden of Eden, this tent structure where God dwells with his people once again. You might've noticed that some of our Jewish neighbors in the city once a year set up little tent structures, tent-like structures, Uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is more commonly known today as Sukkot. This is one way that Sukkot uh, was remembered in Coal Valley recently. It's a a festival that happens in the fall. Why do some of our Jewish neighbors still practice this to this day? David Brickner writes in his book called The Feast of Tabernacles, The Feast of Tabernacles was an annual reminder to the people of God, or to the people that God is the great shepherd who has chosen to tabernacle among them to protect and bless them wherever they wander. 
The Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder that God was with his people. Uh, rather, the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder that God was with his people while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And so our Jewish neighbors today still remember this, and it's a beautiful thing. Fast forward in the story even more, a couple hundred years, the tabernacle is replaced with a more permanent structure, the temple. And this is the place where God's heavenly home overlaps with his earthly home. And if you were here this summer, we looked at the temple in depth in the series that CJ and Dave preached through on the book of Haggai. And for a moment, the temple is glorious. It's amazing. However, it doesn't last for long. Israel's leaders, just like Adam and Eve, rebel against God. And as a result, tragically, the temple is destroyed and all hope seems lost once again. And though the temple is eventually rebuilt, it's, it's just a shadow of its former glory. It quickly falls into corruption again. And the Old Testament ends beckoning this question. Is it impossible for humanity to dwell with God as he intended? And then we read in John 1.14, speaking of Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is literally God dwelling with his people. It's God tabernacling. That's how you could translate that. God tabernacling with his people. Joe Sloneker of the Bible Project, who I borrowed from heavily in this overview of temple and the story of God, writes, uh, John the Apostle goes on to record Jesus referring to his own body as the temple, saying that it will be destroyed but rebuilt in three days. At Jesus' crucifixion, the curtain that shielded the inner room of the temple is torn. What was the significance of this event? The author of Hebrews tells us uh, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that accomplished what the temple in Jerusalem never could. Through Jesus' sacrifice and victory, he made a way for God not only to dwell with his people, but for God to dwell in his people. So when we get to the New Testament, the word temple is used, but it's not used to describe a building. It's not used to describe a tabernacle, tent. It's not used uh, to describe a structure, but rather it's used to describe people. And that's why the writers of the New Testament, when they talk about temple, they talk about the people of God. We read in 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The song that we sang right before we jumped into this text this morning is so beautiful in many ways. It sings of better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. And in this chapter of God's story, we're not talking about a building. We're not talking about meeting in this room. We're talking about God in us, his spirit dwelling in us. That is where God is in this chapter of the story. And it's important to note uh, that in this present reality, Paul is not only referring to individuals, but he's referring to a community. Paul is using the plural form of the word you, which we don't have a great way to translate into English, at least English on the West Coast. I have a love-hate relationship with the South. <laughs> 
I have family uh, in Texas. I've spent more time than I'd like in Texas. But there are some things that I, that I love about it. I love uh, Southern barbecue, Texas brisket. Like, there's nothing like it. I've tried brisket at a place off to Visadero, and no offense to that place. It's a great, great place, but it was a humiliation um, to brisket. Uh, and I love, you know, Carolina barbecue, some good Carolina pork, get that mustard rub on there. Like, I just love Southern barbecue. I also love the word y'all. I wish that we could use it on the West Coast because it's so handy. It's so much better, flows better than, uh, <laughs> than you guys. And so when we come to this passage, just pretend we're in the South for a moment, just for a moment, but let's pretend like we're in South just for a moment. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is, y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's <laughs> what Paul's saying right here. God doesn't dwell with us in a temple building. He dwells in all of our bodies. He's talking about us together. And so we'll jump back to our text in Romans 8. Continue to just pretend you're in the South for a moment. Uh, he's saying his spirit who dwells in y'all, all of us together. We are many temples. God dwells in us today. He has made his home in us today. And that's why God said, uh, or Jesus said rather, in his life and ministry, that it is to our advantage that we have the spirit over Jesus physically present with us. Per Dave's recommendation, I recently started watching The Chosen, which is, is great. It's this TV series about Jesus' life and ministry, and I've been thinking a lot about how incredible it would be to be one of Jesus' apprentices walking with him on earth. It'd be so amazing. But what Jesus says is it's actually better that we have the spirit dwelling in us than being with him physically on this earth. We are at an advantage place to the 12 disciples that we read of in the scriptures. And Francis Chan, speaking about this in his book on the Holy Spirit called The Forgotten God, writes, and I love this, it makes sense that Jesus would say it is to our advantage to have this other counselor referring to the spirit. And after all, Jesus merely walked beside the disciples, but the Spirit would actually enter their human bodies. You've probably heard this truth a hundred times, but have you marveled at it? Would you be willing to take 30 seconds right now just to dwell on the fact that God is in you? Let's do that. Let's take a moment now just to dwell on the fact that God is in us and marvel at it. Beloved, God is in you. You are a mini temple. Because the Spirit dwells in you, you are a mini temple. And this has massive implications for our future. And this has massive implications for our present. And so we'll start by looking at the, the future implications. And that is most succinctly this. Because the Spirit dwells in us, 
we are going to rise from the dead. Let's read verse 11 again. It says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Last week, Dave focused on the theme of death and life in the passage that came before this in the book of Romans. And we see uh, that after a long struggle between death and life and kind of Romans as a whole, and in this chapter in particular, we now hit a bit of a climax where we're introduced, for, uh, we're introduced to resurrection, overcoming death. And when we think about resurrection, we, we typically think most often about Jesus's resurrection, which is, is good. That's the climax of the biblical story. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we would still be dead in our sins. But this verse, the main thing it's focusing on isn't Jesus's resurrection, but ours. Jesus's resurrection is a template for our future resurrection. Look back at the text. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. There's so much going on there. What does uh, Paul mean by mortal bodies? I want to very briefly trace this through the story, very briefly. In creation, we see that we are intended to have bodies that live forever. But then in the fall, we now have mortal bodies, bodies that will die. But when Jesus became a human, he took on himself a mortal body. Jesus died in a mortal body. And like Jesus, all of us will also die in a mortal body. After Jesus died, his body and his soul were separated for three days. And after we die, our bodies will go into the ground and our souls will go to heaven if we trusted in Jesus that is not the end of the story. It gets better than that because death is not the end of the story. After three days, Jesus was raised in a new physical resurrection body. And after a period of time, we too will be raised in new physical resurrection bodies. And our new bodies will be perfected. No more pain, no more sickness, no more death. And that's why we read of what this will be like when we get to the end of the story in Revelation 21. We see a picture of what things will be like after we rise from the dead to live with Jesus in a fully renewed world. And it's so beautiful. We read in Revelation 21, and I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying, nor mourning, nor pain anymore. For all the former things have passed away. That's so beautiful. Look at that word, dwell. The dwelling place of God with humans again. Eden fully restored. Except it's even 
better because everything that went wrong, everything that's wrong in this world, everything that's wrong in our bodies presently will fade away. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. All the former things have passed away. And if you trust in Jesus, this is your future. You will rise from the dead. If you trust in Jesus, you will live with him in a fully renewed world with a fully renewed body. And we can know this for certain. How? The Spirit. Looking at verse 11 again. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is a template for our future resurrection. Because like Jesus, we will die. Pain in this life is inevitable. I have type 1 diabetes. It's a part of my story. And I experience every day of my life, my body not working the way that it should be. And it is awful. (laughs) It takes a toll on my mind and my emotions and my body and my relationships. Every aspect of my life is impacted by the pain of the fall. And pain in this life, in all of our stories, is inevitable. And that's why we need this hope. We can't avoid death. We can't avoid pain. But death and pain are not the end of the story. Because like Jesus, we will rise from the dead in a new body. The same spirit that did this for Jesus will do this for us. And that is our future hope. To sum up where we've been, we we first saw that because the spirit dwells in us, we are many temples. We are the place where God dwells. He dwells in us. And then we saw that the future implications of this, the mass implications has for our future, that because the spirit dwells in us, we are going to rise from the dead. But this not only has implications for our future, this also has massive implications for our present, which is where we'll focus in on the rest of our time. And we'll see that because the spirit dwells in us, Resurrection is beginning inside of us today. Moving forward in the passage to verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, and that should be brothers or sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this passage ends juxtaposing, contrasting a way that leads to death and a way that leads to life. And it's not talking about uh, physical death primarily. It's talking primarily about 
emotional, spiritual, relational life and death. To me, as I read this passage, it sounds kind of like good parenting. Uh, I have a year and a half year old son, Jude. Many of you have met him. He's wonderful. I love him dearly. So much of my time is spent keeping Jude from dying. (laughs) It's a strong way to put it. Um, But he's constantly running into harm's way, whether that's trying to get into a knife drawer or gasoline in the garage or a fire pit. There are so many times every single day where I am restraining my child from that which will bring severe harm to him. And good parents do this. Uh, The old parents in the room know this. If you observe parents, know this. Your own parents did this. Um, In that uh, good parents keep their kids from from harm. They keep their kids from following into, in a sense, into a way that leads to death in a physical sense. And God is doing that here in a spiritual sense with us as a very good parent who loves us, who cares for us. He's trying to keep us from walking in a way that is going to bring harm to us. And he, he does it with a pretty stern warning here. But there's times with Gene where I, can, Gene, where I have to be pretty stern. Like, he's going to walk off the staircase. I'm like, Gene, stop. Like, please, buddy, stop. Like, don't go down the stairs. I don't want you to go down the stairs. It's not going to be good. And that is what God is doing here. He's inviting us into a way that leads to life, a way that leads to flourishing. And he does this over and over throughout the story. Uh, one place where we see him do this is uh, with Moses, where long time ago, earlier in the story, um, when God's people are in the wilderness, we read in Deuteronomy 30, uh, Moses saying, see, I have set, bef- Moses saying rather, see, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. The people of Israel, unfortunately, we know from the story, failed to listen to Moses, and they chose the way that leads to death, that leads to death. And left on our own, all of us will over and over again do the same thing. We too will fail. But we're not left on our own. We have something that Israel didn't have. Or more accurately, we have someone that Israel didn't have. We have the Spirit dwelling in us. The Spirit no longer dwells in a tabernacle. He no longer dwells in a temple. He no longer dwells in just Jesus' body. He no longer dwells merely with us. He dwells in us. And that changes everything. Because the Spirit dwells in us, resurrection is happening and beginning today inside our bodies as we move from a way, of living, uh, a way of living that leads to death into a way that leads to life, as we move from walking in the flesh to walking into the spirit, we experience, in a sense, resurrection happening inside of us today. That's what this passage is all about as it drives towards the present implications of the spirit's dwelling with us. So let's unpack it. Let's come back here to verse 12. So then, brothers or brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That phrase, so then, is important. What it's, it's signifying, what it's cueing to us is that this is kind of the conclusion of Paul's argument. In light of everything that he has said so far in this 
passage, this chapter, this is the implication. The implication is that we are debtors. We don't tend to think of ourselves as debtors. What does that, that mean? That means that we have an obligation. And specifically, we have an obligation to not live according to the flesh. Because we have the spirit, because we're going to be raised, because God has taken up residence in us today, we are obligated to not live according to the flesh, but rather to live according to the spirit. John Stott, in his commentary on this, writes, Paul's argument seems to be this. If the indwelling spirit has given us life, which he has, your spirit is alive, we cannot possibly live according to the flesh, flesh, since that way leads to death. How can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable, even ludicrous. No, we are in debt to the indwelling spirit of life to live out our God-given, or to uh, live out our God-given life and put everything which threatens, or put to death everything which threatens or is incompatible with it. The problem is that we all live inconsistent lives. Even though we've been given the Spirit, we at times live life in the flesh. And the flesh is the, the part of us that still needs to be transformed. It's the part of us that doesn't yet know the love of Jesus. William Barclay writes in his commentary on this passage, describing the flesh. Paul really means human nature in all of its weakness, as he means human nature in its vulnerability to sin. He means that part of human beings which offers sin a way in. To live according to the flesh is to live a life dominated by the dictates and desires of sinful human nature instead of a life dominated by the dictates and love of God. When we trust in Jesus for salvation, we're not made perfect right on the spot. All of us has a part of us that's been transformed by Jesus and a part of us that is not yet transformed by Jesus. It still needs to be transformed. A part of us that knows the love of God and a part that doesn't yet fully know the love of God. And we don't want to live according to that flesh, that fleshy part of us, because if we do, it leads to horrible places. And so what do, we, what do we do about this? This passage tells us, it says in the end of verse 13, by the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. And to be honest, there's a part of me that cringes a little bit when I read that. That's really intense language. And I have to remind myself, this is God, like a good parent, keeping us from harm. What does he mean though when he says this? It's, it's intense. There's a lot at stake. Well, the deeds of the body are kind of like the, misdeeds of the body or sinful actions. And so what God isn't telling us is to put to death the spirit-filled part of us, by no means. But what he is telling us is to put to death our sinful actions. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, like, I thought the point of this passage, though, was resurrection, overcoming death. Like, that's the good news we were just focusing on. Why are we coming back here to, to death? Why is this passage telling us to die to sinful actions. One commentator writes, there's a kind of life which leads to death and a kind of death which leads to life. When we live by the flesh, we experience the kind of life which leads to death. 
when we live by the Spirit, we experience the kind of death which leads to life. Let's live the kind of death which leads to life. In the same way that physically dying uh, leads to being raised in new bodies, putting to death sin leads to experiencing life. This passage is inviting us into, in a sense, a death that is followed by resurrection, dying to sin that we might truly live. It's like a little resurrection happening inside of us. The reality, though, is that putting sinful actions to death is not easy. It's like fighting a war. And people make a common mistake when they're fighting this war. And that is to try and fight sin without the help of the Spirit. That's been me so many times in so many spaces of my life. I've spent seasons of my life trying to take a few areas of my life and just reach a state of sinless perfection in my own strength, in my own power. And it never goes well. And when I fail, oftentimes my inner critic is just turned up to 10 and I feel a sense of condemnation about not being able to measure up to a perfect standard in that area of my life. And I know many can probably relate to that experience. If that's you, if that's some of how you have fought this war and it hasn't gone well, the good news for you, if you felt a sense of condemnation, is Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. We can't get rid of the flesh fully in this life. We can't eradicate it. It will be with us until we rise from the dead. So what do we do with this fleshy part of us that we can't fully get rid of? John Mark Comer writes in his book, Live No Lies, For Paul, the way that we fight the flesh and win is not through willpower, but through the Spirit's power. He urges us not to white-knuckle it, slap our faces, or pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but simply to live by the Spirit. Not willpower, but the Spirit's power. The Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling with us. He wants to lead us to encounter the love of Jesus afresh so that we can, uh, so the flesh can take the backseat to the spirit in our lives. He wants to partner with us to move from death into life so we can set aside the flesh that brings harm to ourselves and others. Earlier in Romans, we read, uh, or not in this, in this series, but earlier in Romans, in Romans 2, we read, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And repentance most simply means change. When we encounter God's kindness, his love, his grace, it leads us to change. We encounter God's love, it makes us want to move the flesh into the backseat and the spirit into the front seat with us. And so I just want to gently ask you, where are you still living according to the flesh today? Maybe it's how you're using your time, money, your sexuality, your vocation, your relationships to 
seek your own happiness at all costs, to do whatever you want to do? How are you living right now according to the flesh? The Spirit wants to help you with that. You don't have to try and change on your own. John Mark Comer continues, if you're trying to use willpower against your self-defeating behavior that's rooted in trauma or past sin, and you feel like you're failing, don't beat yourself up, give up. Change your strategy. Willpower is not the answer to your problem. To win, we need access to a power that's beyond uh, beyond us. We need an ally in the fight to come alongside us and turn the tide. We need the power that is the spirit of Jesus. So introduce your flesh to the spirit of Jesus. Move it into the back seat. Do that work with trusted friends in your citizens community or maybe a therapist or through spiritual disciplines, but do that work so that the spirit-filled core of who you are can stay in the driver's seat of your life with you. And as this transformation happens, we'll become more like who we will be in our future resurrection bodies, where every part of us is perfected, where every addiction is defeated, where every hurting part is healed, where every pattern of sin is broken. That day is coming for all of us, where all will be healed inside our souls, inside our bodies, all will be as it is supposed to be. And yet we won't receive those new bodies until the resurrection. But today, our future selves are breaking into the present. future begins today inside of us because the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of y'all. It's only possible because of Jesus. In the temple, there was a curtain that separated God's dwelling place from the rest of the building. We sang about it this morning. It was a barrier between God's spirit and humanity. And when Jesus died, we read in Matthew 27, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Jesus was willing for his body to be torn on the cross so that the curtain that separated God's spirit from humanity could be torn. Jesus was willing to be put to death so that we could uh, raise to life Jesus was willing to leave heaven where he dwelt with the Father so that his spirit could dwell in us. And Jesus was willing for his body to be beaten so that when we sin, we don't have to beat ourselves up, but can receive his tender forgiveness. Church, Let's let the resurrection begin inside of us today.
Let's move from a life in the spirit, from a life in the flesh to a life in the spirit. Let's move from the way that leads to death to the way that leads to life. And as we do, we will be a radiant mini temple showing the fullness of what God is like to a world, to a city that is longing for his presence, whether they know it or not. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't create this world and walk away from it, that you didn't watch humans fall into sin and give up on humanity, that you haven't watched us make mistakes and give up on us, but that you're a God who is for us, that you're a God who forgives that you're a God who heals, that you're a God who resurrects. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection, for the assurance that we can have that we will rise again into new life with you. Father, thank you for your spirit dwelling in us today, a taste of our future resurrection. God, I pray even in this moment, would that truth hit our hearts in a brand new way? That we are your home. That we together are the place where you dwell. God, we go about this week so aware of that in our workplaces, with our roommates, with our families, and all the spaces that we go, would we recognize that you are dwelling in us And would we radiate a beautiful picture of what you're like, display a beautiful picture of what you're like to all those who are around us by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful truth. Would you cause us to walk in it in the power of your spirit this week? We ask in the name of our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.